Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bealey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. Also on the podcast today is special guest David Liddle, Chief Executive of online investment service Ipso Facto Investor. If you want your investments to do well, it's really important to choose the right ones. But this can be easier said than done because there's over 3,000 unit trusts and open-ended investment companies available and around 300 investment trusts. So six years ago, we launched the IC Top 100 Funds, a list of suggestions across all the major asset classes to try and help investors narrow down the vast choice. We update the list every year and have published a newly updated version in today's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Nine investment professionals helped us put the list together, and one of these was today's special guest, David Liddle. Now, although we include 100 funds in this list, it's a selection to choose from. We are obviously not suggesting people buy anything like 100 funds. So, David, when you're constructing a portfolio of funds, roughly how many should you include? Leonora, it's going to depend on the size of your portfolio, your objectives, and how active an investor you want to be. Building a portfolio is all about diversification, so you want to have sufficient funds in order to achieve this. I'm quite a fan of having a set of core funds, say 5 to 10, and then a further set of 5 to 10 satellite funds, which might be more actively traded. So perhaps the answer is between 10 and 20. Less than this, and you lose diversification potential. More than 20, and it becomes rather unwieldy. But it does depend on the amount of money you are investing. Yeah. Okay. Now, while the IC Top 100 Funds tries to narrow down the number of possible fund choices, you should still do a lot of research on the fund before you buy one, or any other fund for that matter. David, when you're trying to choose a good fund in a given sector or category, just in in a nutshell, what's your research process? Well, what we do, Leonora, is pick a number of funds from the same category and compare and contrast. There are some basic tick boxes to go through. What is the objective of the fund? Does it meet the objective of the client? What is the benchmark? How long has the current fund manager been running the fund? Is it their performance record? And particularly for investment trusts, obviously, what is the size of the fund? What is the spread between bid and offer prices? What is the discount? And more generally, how volatile is the performance? How concentrated is the portfolio? How many holdings? Does the fund manager have a particular style bias? And if relevant, what is the yield? So a lot of things to check out. But if you were to pick out perhaps, I don't know, the three, four absolutely most important things to check on a fund, what would those be? Well, I, I start with actually looking at the, um, the portfolio, the top 10 holdings, and uh, see what this tells me about the fund manager's style. And do I actually like the portfolio? Does it offer anything different? Uh, And then, obviously, it comes down to charges and performance, particularly five-year performance record. And um, finally, when selecting, obviously, in these days with so many share classes around, it's important to make sure you get the best value share class that you can. Yeah. Um, I was saying that's something we took into consideration drawing up the list. We have um, tried to flag what looks like to be the um, cheapest platform share class and open-ended funds. Now, we've been speaking about information gathering, which is absolutely crucial. Um, what are your go-to sources when you're checking out this um, data? 
Well, we tend to go to the provider's fact sheet uh, where we can and also look at reported accounts. And with investment trusts, obviously, we're monitoring the daily stock exchange announcements to see if there's any news relevant to that trust. Um, so there are a number, number of sources to look at, but I think the starting point is the fact sheet. Okay. Um, do you like um, data providers like FE Trustnet and Morningstar? Uh, yes, absolutely. All, all, all of those are, are useful, um, uh, useful sources of information. You suggested keeping a number of the existing funds in the list, including Standard Life Gars, an absolute return fund that aims to provide positive investment returns in all market conditions over medium to long term. The thing about this fund is, though, um, it tends to divide opinion, and some of the other panellists thought it should be removed. So can you explain why you think Standard Life Gars is still worth consideration? From our point of view, we're looking for diversifiers, so funds that will give a different outturn to the core equity holdings. Bond funds that are very expensive at the moment and have strangely been rather correlated with equity fund performance. So aside from cash and to some extent precious metals and commodities, the sort of absolute return funds like uh, the Standard Life Fund look like the best bet at being diversified from equities. Although we don't welcome poor performance, we're not bothered by a 12-month dip. Being too early into a strategy is often the fate of good fund managers. If anything, we want to buy things that have underperformed. But we would get worried if there was a three-year lapse in performance. Um, The team here has good experience. They've been running the fund since 2008. And aside from diversification, we do think the next few years are going to be difficult for investors. The GARS fund can be tactical and switch positioning in response to circumstances that may be changing rather swiftly. Now, although we kept most of the funds from last year's list, we made 27 changes. And these included removing Middlefield Canadian Income, a Canadian equities investment trusts, for reasons including its relatively small market cap and because it's underperformed its benchmark. David, you also expressed a concern about this trust. Um, what was your concern? Yeah, well, obviously, as well as the, the market cap size, and it's, this is not a big issue for me, but the energy and oil play a big part in the Canadian economy. Mm. Uh, so any Canadian fund is likely to have a large direct and or possibly indirect exposure to com- commodities. So even even prop- the property holdings could be effectively influenced by the oil price. And most large cap equity funds will already have exposure to the oil majors. So this fund is adding exposure to energy without making it explicit. I'm sure it's a perfectly good fund, but I would not want it as a core holding, and I don't think it acts satisfactorily as a diversifier either. Okay. Now, new additions to the IC Top 100 funds also include one of your suggestions, Asian Total Return Investment Company. This is an investment trust that focuses on Asia ex-Japan equities and has been run by asset manager Schroders for just over three years. David, can you tell us a bit more about this investment trust and why you thought it would be a good addition? Yes. Up until 2013, this was a Henderson-managed trust, originally Henderson TR Pacific. Uh, then Henderson Asian Growth, it was rebadged as. And finally, it's ended up in the Schroders stable. Again, for me, this is a trust which provides something different. It offers an element of capital preservation, although obviously this is not guaranteed. 
Uh, while Asian economies are likely to continue to be the growth engines of the global economy, Asian stock markets may well be volatile, particularly if we are moving into a U.S. rate rise cycle. The Schroders team have a good record in Asian equities, and three-year performance since they took over is looking up. So I think it's another trust that is just offers something a little bit different to the mainstream Asian portfolios. Okay, and um, you can see a bit more information on that trust um, on the website and in the magazine. Now, while we hope the IC Top 100 funds will help investors, um, it is important that you don't just confine your fund choices to this list and similar offerings published by some of the brokers. David, why is it a bad idea just to confine yourself to a few lists? Well, I think every investor needs to build portfolios to meet their own circumstances and objectives. And uh, those can be uh, very varied. These sort of lists often reflect the fashion of the day, and some funds can become unsuitable either because they're growing too fast in terms of open-ended funds or, or they've become too expensive in terms of closed-ended investment trusts. Also, we're in a very fast-changing world. Fund managers can move on, funds can be merged, mandates can be changed. So as we said before, doing your own research is vital and really as wide a research as you have the time to do is likely to pay off. Thank you, David. Some useful points on how to evaluate funds and pick some suitable options from the IC Top 100 funds. Passive funds also have an important role to play an investor's portfolio. So as part of our extensive coverage of this area, last year Kate launched our ETF portfolios for capital growth, one of which was constructed by today's guest David Little. Kate, you've recently checked up on these portfolios. Can you give us an update? Yeah, so the last time I checked up on these portfolios was in September last year. And at that point, they were having a bit of a bleak time. And we'd just come out of some real turbulence in China, which was spooking the market. And they were both down. Uh, a year on from that, and things things are looking pretty good. They're both up. Um, so Christopher Aldous' portfolio is up by 9.6%. And David's is just pulling ahead of that at 13.4%. So they've both done really well. And in fact, the total return figures, and this is just over one year, um, 1st of September to 1st of September, are all double digits. There are some up as much as 30%. So it's quite kind of stark, really. And so, yeah, I've, I've been having a chat with David about this. And so, David, what was your original aim with this portfolio? What, what kind of return were you aiming for and what kind of risk level would you put this as? The objective was obviously set as capital growth and we wanted to create an easy-to-manage portfolio with a relatively small number of holdings. And we were expecting returns in the 6% per annum range uh, with an average level of risk for a capital growth portfolio. But by definition, in these times, if you're looking for capital growth, you have to take on a certain amount of risk since it is likely to be predominantly equity-based. Yeah. I mean, have you been surprised by just how well it has done over a year? Well, uh, you've got to recall that, uh, as you said earlier, um, a year ago, markets were very depressed um, and uh, arguably overly sold. Um, so um, there was always a chance of a reasonable bounce back. Um, but, um, you know, obviously people didn't predict Brexit and the impact that has, which has been beneficial for um, international equity exposure, 
where you haven't been hedged into sterling. Yeah, I mean, what what kind of impact do you think Brexit has had then? Do you think, is it just a currency effect or are there, you know, are there areas, emerging markets, for example, that people have kind of flocked to to get away from UK equities? Just what's the full kind of impact there, do you think? Well, I think the currency impact has obviously been in two areas. Firstly, the as we said, international exposure where sterling has fallen by something over 10% against most currencies since Brexit. But also there's been the effect that the international companies listed in the UK uh, have had a a gain from uh, having their overseas earnings translated into sterling uh, at a weaker rate. So their earnings have effectively gone up by 10%, which uh, has made a lot of those stocks attractive to, in particular, U.S. investors. So the U.K. market is actually, at least the, the, the FTSE 100 index, has done pretty well since Brexit. I think the sort of immediate effect on other markets, although initially it was quite uh, strong, I think since then people have become much more concerned about uh, the old issues about the Chinese economy, but more particularly U.S. interest rates. Yeah, and and I mean, both those things have big impacts on emerging markets, which I want to talk about because that has been the most successful area, I think, of your portfolio. And the the Vanguard FTSE emerging markets was up over 30%. Um, So what what do you think is behind that? And can that continue? Or will things like a US rate rise throw it off course? Yes, a year ago, um, everyone was very bearish about emerging markets and China in particular, as, as, as you were saying. There are also big issues with Brazil, for example, and commodity prices, which impact quite a lot of emerging markets, which are commodity producers, were, were heading down. Um, but sentiment was really very, very bearish, so it didn't have to improve very much for stock markets to respond. Uh, and China growth does not seem to have collapsed in the way people expected. And it has probably been helpful that U.S. interest rates have not gone up as much as might have been expected a year ago. So I think, I mean, I think there is that um, risk in the future that if we are in a U.S. rate rise period, that that will put pressure on some capital to be withdrawn from emerging markets. But long-term, Asian growth in particular, uh, you know, looks... the place to be um, for a large part of your overseas equity exposure. Okay, and um, I want to talk about the area of the portfolios which did not do well, and this actually isn't um, an issue for you, but in the other portfolio there was quite a lot of hedging, um, which Christopher put on um, you know, on the back of QE programs in, in Europe and Japan, and a, basically a bet on devaluing currencies over there, but these have both returned negative, or they've lost money. Um so why why do you think that happened? Why was hedging a bad call? And you've just put some into your portfolio. So why are you doing that? Well, obviously, uh, currency. I mean, currencies are notoriously difficult to predict. And um, when you're making a uh, when you're making a currency play, you're you're taking two decisions. Uh, you're you're taking a decision about what you think the strength of the overseas currency is going to be, but you're also taking a decision about what you think sterling is going to do. Uh, now, what, what bizarrely, J- Japan in particular, but also also the euro, have, have been quite strong despite all the monetary stimulus 
strain in it. And this is, I think, in part a reaction to uh, disappointment with the US dollar uh, because rates haven't gone up as quickly as some people uh, might have ex- expected. But also maybe disappointment with Abe's programme in Japan, for example, and well, maybe yeah, markets losing some it's faith failing there. To, it's failing to um, get inflation moving as much as people think, uh, or rather as much as people wanted. Um, but that that uh, that's possibly going to going to change. But I, I think you know, particularly with with the yen, and this comes to your point about why I now want to be hedged, is that sterling has weakened from something like one eighty six to the yen to one thirty five over the past year. That's a twenty seven percent decline. So um, some of that was about Brexit, but actually. The yen had been pretty strong well before sterling's depreciation as a result of Brexit. So when you get that kind of movement, you've got to think that perhaps um, there's not going to be much more to go for. Uh, And maybe at some point this massive monetary and fiscal stimulus will start to work. Okay, interesting. And just on the final kind of, not the final tweak you have made, but the final one we'll talk about um, is your inflation-linked bond ETF. Again, with inflation not exactly looking high, why why that one? Well, to be honest, somewhat reluctantly, um, what I'm looking for is, is as we said before, is, is things that uh, will react slightly differently to the core equity holdings. We're looking for assets that are not necessarily correlated with equities, and it does seem that although the signs are mixed, the U.S. economy has been adding a good number of jobs over the last uh, 12 months. And the risk must be that we're moving in an inflationary direction. And my problem with these, with inflation linked, is that particularly in the U.K., the break-even level of inflation is really quite high at 3%. But I, I like the global fund more than a, a, ster, a purely sterling fund because... A, the break-even level on U.S. inflation linked is, is lower, and B, um, there's some uh, hope that one might get returned from uh, from dollar strength. Okay, but you don't you don't love it. It's just a kind of diversifier. And just finally, for people looking at this now, thinking, oh, 13%, excellent. Is this has this been unusual? Can we expect that again next year? I think this has been a, a unusual period to look at because we were we are comparing it with a a depressed level of, of equities in September last year. I still think, you know, that that, that in, in, in planning, people should be expecting more like um, the 6% per annum that, that we thought from the start of this portfolio on average. So I, I don't think people should expect 13.4% returns every year. Okay, thanks. Yeah, okay. Thank you, David and Kate. Now, there's been some fairly dramatic moves in markets and currencies since the vote for Brexit, and these have affected a number of different investment areas. Investment trusts haven't escaped the action. So, Emma, how have they fared since the Brexit vote? Has it all been plummeting share prices? Um, Not at all, Leonora. It's been a real mix, actually. Some have done very well. Um, posting returns of 30 or high 20s um, returns since the vote for Brexit and others have done not so well and and lost money. Okay, so um, starting with uh, the good news, um, Mm -hmm. what types of investment trusts have done particularly well since the Brexit vote in June? Yeah, sure. Well, it actually relates to our discussion a little bit early on. So it has tended to be Asian and emerging market trusts that have done very well. 
And as we were talking about, that's had two reasons, really. One to do with the boost to overseas currencies that's happened as a result of a fall in sterling. And also these markets have continued to enjoy relatively steady growth. Um, and investors are seeing them as a good option. So Asian and emerging market trusts have done very well. So, for example, JP Morgan's Chinese Investment Trust has returned, um, its share price has returned 30.7%. And that's just since the 23rd of June. JP Morgan's Global Emerging Markets Income Trust has returned 29.1%. And JP Morgan Indian Investment Trust has delivered 27.3%. So those are the top three funds since Brexit. Okay. Now, um, what hasn't done so well? Well, not surprisingly, really, it's trust that's been focused on the UK domestic economy, such as commercial property trusts and those that have invested primarily in UK mid and small companies. Um, and these were all hit by negative reaction following the vote for to leave the European Union. So, for example, JP Morgan's Midcap Trust made a loss of 6.2% um, since the vote. And the other kind of, of funds that have not done so well have been debt funds. And these have been negatively affected by the cut in interest rates. And so, um, for example, P2P Global Investments made a loss of 5.5%. Is it actually relevant to look at how a fund performs over a short period of two, three months like this? Um, it's a really good question because, you know, as investors um, rather than traders, we sort of have it drummed into us that we should be looking for an investment period of at least five years. However, the analysts that, that did this research, Numis, said that actually it can be useful to look at these short time periods of particularly where there's lots of volatility just to assess the risk and return profile of a fund or trust and to see how well they cope in choppy market conditions. So, yes, it can be useful from that perspective. But probably, you know, the most important thing is still the long term performance of the trust and fund over a longer term time frame. And actually, um, if you go onto our website, we've actually covered the one, three, five and 10 year performance of the, the trust that were shown to be good and bad. Um, so you can get an understanding a how, they, picture. Exactly, how yeah. they've done over the long term. OK. Um, David, do you think it's relevant to evaluate fund performance over a short period, such as two or three months? Normally, I would say no to Leonora. But I do think in this case, it is interesting to look at the performance of trust since the Brexit vote. And more especially how much uh, or if they have uh, changed portfolios since June 23rd. I rather suspect that many fund managers were caught like rabbits in the headlights when the referendum result was announced. So probably portfolios did not change that much. But looking at UK-focused funds in particular, you know, it, it may be interesting to see what portfolio moves people have made in reaction to this. Having said that, it may be that one can't conclude that much since the Brexit dust has, is perhaps still yet to settle. Okay, then, some useful insights, but invest for the long term. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and David Little, Chief Executive of online investment service Ipso Facto Investor. You can see the full list of IC Top 100 funds and read more on our growth ETF portfolio and investment trusts in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.